Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sarah Story, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. Today I'm joined by Margaret Bucci and Elizabeth Abstin to talk about the celebrations around what would be artist Andrew Bucci's 100th birthday. So we will talk about events that are happening all over the state. So thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So um, Margaret, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what we're celebrating? The artist. Yeah, I would love to. Thank you. Um, Thank you for this opportunity to talk about this. Andrew Bucci was my uncle. He was my dad's brother. And he was born in 1922. So um, this would have been his 100th birthday on January 12th. Um, And on that day, there was a celebration that took place at the two Mississippi museums to to kick off a special exhibition um, uh, of work at the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. Um, Andrews, our our estate donated um, a portion of his early uh, student work and scrapbooks to, to Archives and History. And um, so we got to talk about that, that part of his um, artistic journey during that celebration. And the Mississippi Senate declared uh, January 12th, Andrew Bucci Day. So it was quite a party. And, and Sarah, I remember seeing you there too. That's great. Um, uh, we had a great uh, turnout. And, you know, I've, I've been able to learn a lot about Andrew's work through having his uh, work available for this kind of study and this kind of inquiry. So that was a great way to kick off the year. And I'm very appreciative to the Mississippi Department of Archives and History for making that happen. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, Is that exhibition still on view or is that? um, It closed in March. Okay. It closed in March, but there's a lot more in store for the year. Um, If people are interested in learning about the centennial, uh, andrewbucci.com is a great source of information about all the events we've got in store for the year. Awesome. Elizabeth, do you want to give us a little bit of context about the significance of Andrew Bucci in his work? Sure, absolutely. So um, I guess I first started really working with Andrew Bucci himself um, right after college. Uh, I graduated, um, I went to Rhodes in Memphis and moved back to Jackson afterwards and um, started working at Brown's Fine Art. And so Andrew has been represented there for quite a while. And he would come in the gallery periodically and just sit and chat. And he was you know, just the sweetest man and just so smart um, and creative. And, you know, he was one of those artists that you, you know, you look around at the gallery and you're like, oh, this is an artist who, you know, has, he has an important history to him. Um, he's been, you know, around the world. He studied in Chicago uh, in the 40s and 50s, sort of at the peak of when artists in America were experimenting in um, abstract expressionism and abstraction. And he didn't go quite that far into abstract expressionism, but certainly was influenced by Matisse and Picasso and kind of the French abstract artists as well. So he was learning um, in art school at that time. He got his uh, BFA and MFA in Chicago and um, 
studied at other places as well as Margaret knows his whole time by heart. Um, and uh, so he really, and he lived in Washington, D.C. for much of his career. But, you know, being from Vicksburg, of course, has you know, deep roots here and always came back and, um, you know, would spend time here and create these beautiful abstract works. And so it, we're so lucky to have, I guess, what, seven decades worth of art almost to, um, you know, that he, you know, was working and selling as he was alive. And now um, he still has galleries representing him. So really um, a deep body of work and uh, really important to Mississippi's art history, I believe. Absolutely. Um, so Margaret, what was it like growing up around an artist like that? Was he famous when you were, when you were alive or did he gain more significance later? What was that journey? Um, let's see. Um, he he always was generous in giving his art to family members. So we had a lot of his paintings around our house uh, as paintings, like some of his, from his early things that he was doing in art school to some of his later abstracts. And of course, um, we, we weren't exactly art collectors or anything. Um, uh, and I thought his, his art was kind of out there. I didn't really understand abstract art or modern art really, but growing up with that, artwork in the house. It was kind of cool, actually, because it was so different. And um, I really didn't see that around in a lot of places. And to answer your question about his popularity, I think he was very, he was known at that time and, and very respected in art circles. Mm-hmm. I remember taking a Mississippi history course in, in high school and his and um, his name was in the art section. And I thought that was pretty cool. That's you know, cool. he studied under he studied under Marie Hull, who was one of the most you know one of Mississippi's prominent artists of the 20th century, and a great teacher. And they they formed a very special bond. And and um, she uh, was one of his first uh, promoters and advocates. And and I think that really helped elevate him early in his career and establish himself. And he got to to be where he was quite respected and well known in Mississippi art circles. And I think that only grew throughout his life because he experienced you know, some commercial success later in his life, which I think must have been very satisfying for him. You know, he had two careers. He worked as a full-time meteorologist for the National Weather Service. That's why he wound up in the Washington, D.C. area. He received that training during World War II. And so we actually had two full-time careers for about 30 years. So he retired from the Weather Service in 1979 and was able to devote his full-time to his artwork. So, you know, in his elderly years, he was actually quite productive and prolific and um, produced quite a, a great body of work after his retirement from, from the weather service. So That's yeah, a, interesting. Lot. Yeah. I had forgotten that. So he moved to DC for, to become a meteorologist. That's right. He was hired by the, um, he, he was trained as a weather officer during world war II, wow. And after the war, he, he tried to get, he came back to Mississippi. He tried to get work. People really weren't, buying his paintings. I don't think that, you know, that his particular style was, had taken off at that point. And he tried to get some, some work teaching and it just, you know, the, the weather bureau ended up working out for him. And, and, um, and so, yes, he moved to Greenville, South Carolina first, and then to Washington, DC, where he lived um, for nearly 60 years. But Mississippi remained his home base for art. This is where his most important artistic relationships were. Mm. This is where his gallery relationships were. This is where the museums and universities that collected his work. Um, so 
and he he stayed involved with the Mississippi art colony. So, um, yeah, Margaret and I keep finding places that have these great collections of his work. I think just recently <laughs> was at Delta State. That's right. They have yeah. Several beautiful oil paintings of his that they had on view last year as part of their permanent collection, and you know, wow. all across the state, it's it's wonderful to walk. And there's um, was it Heinz? Heinz, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. You know, it's really incredible that, you know, he was donating or they were buying. I'm not sure, you know, which which it was, but all over the state, these um, public collections, essentially. Um, That's so neat. Yeah. Did yeah. did his meteorology work ever uh, influence his art? Did he ever you know mix the two? <laughs> I asked him that because, you know, Andrew was very attentive to the weather. You can imagine he was always looking at the clouds and telling me what the different clouds meant and what the weather was going to do. And so naturally I was like, well, does that inform your artwork? And he kind of kind of laughed and said, no, um, but I can't help but think that it does. I mean, yeah. he, you know, some paintings that have great clouds in them and he he was just attentive to that kind of atmospheric weather thing. So I'm not sure he drew, you know, he retired in 1979. So I'm not sure how much computers were part of his work, but he was drawing the weather map for the United States by the time he retired. Mm -hmm. So he was doing that kind of drawing on the job. That's um, cool. Which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, and have I, you seen it? Yeah, yeah. We've got some of his weather maps that oh, he wow. kept. You know, Andrew kept everything. I'm, I'm very happy to say uh, he he kept wonderful scrapbooks, which are now part of his archive. Um, we have weather maps that um, I also intend to to uh, to donate to the archive because I think those are important to see. I just think it's really cool. Um, and uh, a lot of his military manuals and things like that. You know, he retired. He ended up serving in the in the National uh, Air National Guard, and he he also retired from the guard with the rank of major. So wow. the military played a, huge part, played a huge part in his career and it, you know, it made it, the GI Bill made it possible for him to go to art school. So all of these things kind of played off each other, you know, that made it possible for him to be an artist. Yeah, that's so neat. Elizabeth, what were you gonna say earlier? Sorry. Oh, just when Margaret said atmosphere, I think that that was sort of spot on with mm -hmm. how, of course, you know, he, he would deny that it was directly connected to his career as a meteorologist. But I think that when you look at his paintings and see the way he um, is experiencing nature or using abstraction, I feel like part of that had to come into it, just how he, you know, the surroundings and the atmosphere were very important to him. And yeah, and the he, movement. If, yeah, the movement. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're familiar with his work, he had, you know, several sort of styles that he would work in and sort of the female form and, more pure abstraction. And then of course, nature was a huge influence as well. So um, I guess when the mood struck him, he would start working in little unofficial series. I don't think he ever called them series. But he definitely had his favorite things to paint. <laughs> yeah. yeah, what was his, um, did he have one thing that he painted more than others? Hmm. Or one subject matter? I mean, the, the female form, again, I think was a big one. Start, I mean, starting in school, because you, you sit there in class and you paint uh, still lifes and then you paint you know, figures in still life settings. And so he, he made lots of those. And then from that went to um, faces. So in the 1950s, he did a lot of female faces. Um, and, he, and another thing to note is that he worked so much on paper. 
Um, and he's really, he really is a paper artist. Margaret and I talk about this a lot mm -hmm. because, um, you know, you think of a painter as an oil painter and canvases. And while he did do uh, quite a few oil paintings, um, really, I think his love was paper because there's an immediacy to it. And he loved watercolor and um, crayon. He called it crayon. Now, whether it was more of a pastel, we're still not quite sure. Um, but, you know, he was really talented in how he could just so quickly create these beautiful scenes, um, you know, on paper. And faces were one of his favorites, I think. This is Sarah Story, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen to the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sarah Story, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. And this week I'm talking with Margaret Bucci and Elizabeth Abston about the celebrations and exhibitions around the artist Andrew Bucci. So we were hearing a little bit more about his career and his influences before the break. Were there any other artists that had significant influence on him and his work? You mentioned Marie Hole. Yeah, um, she, she would, I would think, be the most, uh, have the most profound influence on him as far as, you know, he, he met her when he was a teenager. Oh, wow. He was actually studying, yeah, he was studying at, uh, after graduating from high school in Vicksburg, he, he was, in, he enrolled in Louisiana State University and was majoring in architectural engineering. During summers, he would come back to Jackson and work for the highway department. And he was introduced to Marie Hull and started taking art lessons from her around 1940. Yeah. So he was around 18. And so you can imagine by that, that time, she was quite well known and, uh, and established quite a, a legacy by that time. So I think that, you know, he, he said that, you know, he, by spending time with her and studying with her, he realized that artists, you know, could be an honorable profession and it could be something that he could do. I think at that time he began to realize that that could be part of his future. Mm. So I think that she would be um, the most important influence in his life. And I know that he had some teachers at, uh, at the Art Institute of Chicago who, who were um, also influential. Um, but uh, he, he, his first art instructor was a woman named Marie Claire Sherwood, who's, who's taught at All Saints College in Vicksburg. And he taught very, and he spoke very highly of her as well. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he came from um, a cohort of artists who were coming of age at that time and who had formed the Mississippi Art Colony. So there was all, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of activity going on. Um, a lot of people were able to go to school because of the GI Bill. And, and I think that interest in art was starting to kind of increase at that time, 
just in our culture. Um, so anyway, yeah. I, hope I, I hope I've answered your question. Yeah, well, for those who may not be as familiar, can you tell us a little bit more about the Mississippi Art Colony, what that was, time period, et cetera? Sure. Well, it started um, at a place called Allison's Wells. This is near Canton, Mississippi. And um, a couple named um, Hosford and John Fontaine had a hotel there. And they were art enthusiasts, and they decided to start an art colony, I think around 1947 or 48. And that, that morphed uh, into the Mississippi Art Colony, which is still ongoing today. But um, they really liked Andrew. We had one of his first art shows there in 1949, I think. And um, I think the hotel burned down in 1963, but it, it, it picked up and continued elsewhere. I think Lizzie probably knows more about the uh, art colony and, it's, and where it went from there. Yes, it bounced around a little bit after Allison's Wells and um, it landed uh, it's at the Jacobs camp in Utica today. And it's been there for quite a while. Um, and they're very active still. And, you know, it's a way for artists to get together once or twice a year and spend a, a week doing workshops and they invite guest artists to come in and they have, you know, kind of a self-juried exhibition and that sort of thing. And, um, but it really did, it's, it's one of, it's a great story about, you know, Mississippi art and people coming together um, to create in the state. And um, Bucci was, you know, one of those artists who was a mainstay and other Vicksburg artists as well. Elizabeth Pajerski was one. Um, who you know was always active in, in those circles as well and so they all kind of knew each other it was like a little club I guess <laughs> that's awesome mm -hmm. and as far as his DC area art influences I think there's more research to be done there because mm -hmm. I would really love to know how he was involved I mean I know he was busy with his career as well as with the weather service but um you know DC during that time had such an active art scene with the color field and mm -hmm. um, uh, color field artists that was really, you know, in the 60s and 70s was at, at its peak. I mean, it, it rivaled New York as far as the art scene. And so surely he had influences. There was Alma Thomas and Gene Davis, and you know, they, these are artists working with color and abstraction. And he was there right then. So, you know, I know there's a connection there to be made and more research to be done. And I'll add that to my list of projects as well. <laughs> That's awesome. Do you think that place had uh, any influence in his work, whether he was in DC or traveling or Mississippi? Have you seen those changes? Absolutely. But it, it also, it's also kind of a chronological question as well, because, mm -hmm. you know, he was in these places at this specific time. And while he would travel back and forth to Vicksburg, um, I think, I don't know, Margaret, if it was you telling me that he would stop on the side of the road sometimes and get out his little watercolor sketchbook and, and you know, just, you know, make a little painting on the side of the road because he would drive back and forth from, wow. from Maryland to, to Mississippi um, yes, in right. his later years. And so um, it, it's an interesting question. And that's something that Margaret and I are exploring right now with the show that will be in Vicksburg, because the uh, focus right. of that exhibition will be the places he lived and um, and sort of the places he was painting at the time, we're not looking as much at abstraction or, um, now the Walter Anderson Museum is looking at nature, but in a more broad abstract sense, whereas we're looking at, okay, he was in Chicago, he painted these, you know, Grants Park in Chicago or in New York, he, you know, there's the Battery in New York City. And, and so what, what, what did the styles look like at that time and how did that influence him? You know, his earlier work 
was a little bit more representational. I think just as an artist, you, you learn sort of the mechanics of drawing and all the theory behind it. And there really is a lot more to getting to an abstract painting at the end of your career than, um, than a lot of people think that, you know, a good artist makes it look very easy. And, um, but he was very studious and spent a lot of time, you know, studying his surroundings. And, um, you know, I think that influenced him over time as well. Yeah, that's great. So tell us a little bit more about, uh, we just give us a run over overall rundown of the exhibitions that are coming up this year. So we talked about archives and history, and that was more about his sketchbooks and I guess earlier work. Right. And Beth Batten curated that. Um, she's a former curator at the Art Museum here in Jackson. And uh, we asked her to you know, study the archives and uh, you know, feature the early work. So it was a lot of sketchbooks. Um, and it worked out perfectly because they were able to place them in cases and open the sketchbooks up. And um, anyone, I'll give a shout out, anyone can go down to archives and ask for these sketchbooks to look at. They have them in their you know, available to check out essentially in their, you know, confined area and you can flip through them. Um, and it's just really amazing to see, you know, not only the work that he has in galleries, but what he was just sitting there with sketchbooks creating as well. Um, so she, she looked into his early work. Um, and I guess, Margaret, you want me to just give the rundown for sort of the rest of the year? As sure. Well? Yeah. Okay. So in, uh, let's see, on August 26th, is uh, the Lauren Rogers Museum of Art will open an exhibition and uh, Kristen Zahn is curating that exhibition. She's their curator. Um, and she is focusing on his fashion work. And Margaret can maybe speak a little bit more to his time at Parsons and his interest in fashion, but there is a, a pretty deep body of earlier in his career when he was studying fashion. So she's focusing on that. Um, and then in September is the, BAA show, the Vicksburg Art Association. It will be at the Firehouse Gallery in Vicksburg. Um, and it's a shorter run. It's just the month of September. Um, and again, Margaret mentioned the website. So all of the updates will be there as far as the openings and everything. And that again is focusing on places he's lived, places he has been and how that influenced his style. And then um, in October, the Walter Anderson Museum of Art is opening uh, their exhibition and Maddie Codling, their curator, is in charge of curating that. She's wonderful as well. And so that is focusing more on nature. And I think some relationship, while Andrew Bucci and Walter Anderson didn't really know each other, or I mean, they overlapped a little bit time-wise, but weren't really in the same circles with mm -hmm. Walter being mostly on the coast. But um, they'll look at it from the perspective of, um, you know, how he was influenced by nature as well. So it's going to be a very busy year yeah that's <laughs> great yeah margaret i'm so curious to hear more about his uh fashion influence and in, in parsons i didn't know i don't know much about that part of his career well you know some of his very earliest drawings from the 30s are uh fashion oriented they're they're women in all different kinds of attire he really he really paid a lot of attention to fashion and those types of details and that's an interest that carried him all the way through his career. I mean, up until the, you know, the last few months of his life when he was making sketches, some of them, you know, he was paying attention to those types of details. So um, he obviously felt strongly enough about his interest in fashion to take a break after getting his BFA in Chicago to go to Parsons in New York City. And he spent about six months studying fashion illustration there and um, worked on a lot of uh, 
projects, he, he, uh, some of which will be shown at the Lauren Rogers Museum in their show. And um, uh, I, I read something that he wrote about himself at the time and he, and he felt that maybe the work was a bit too rigid and confining that by that point he had had gained a little bit more independence in his style. So I guess he felt it wasn't the fit for him, but I think he really appreciated being able to study at you know, Parsons and um, but he never stopped drawing those types of figures, you know, and I find it interesting because, you know, when you take a figure and you put them in a particular kind of clothing and that you can actually tell a person's personality, you can tell kind of, um, you can express a mood with it. So I found, I think he found, I think he just found it interesting to play around with those sort of, of combinations. I think he had a lot of fun with it more than anything. Um, because he never stopped doing it. Um, I, I think it was probably one of his first loves was, was, was you know, fashion. I mean, he had a, a subscription to Vogue magazine till the very end. And, um, Amazing. you know, he, he loved it. That's what really um, captured his attention. Did he ever and, design clothes or fabric or anything? Um, not that I know of. I spoke to um, a fellow student of his at Parsons, and she felt like uh, just from what she saw that he could have been a, a he, he had what it took to be a designer because he was coming up with all kinds of fanciful ideas for um, women's attire. And so much of this is documented in his early sketchbooks that Lizzie mentioned. Um, but and, and even like I said, even in his later works, it just it never stopped capture, capturing his imagination. And I think they're I think they're a fun part of his 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 collection. Um, and a lot of people, you know, a lot of people love looking at them. Yeah, that's so neat. Yeah. And wasn't it didn't you say it was maybe Marie Hall who kind of steered him back towards the more fine art as opposed to fashion? Or is, that, is there a question? Yeah, you're right. He did. He did say a couple times in interviews that she, you know, she kind of steered him away from fashion illustration, which I think is which I think is interesting. But, you know, I also think that Andrew was his own person. And if that really if he really felt that that was his calling, he 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 might have done that. But also his it, it you know, he said it might have been too confining. And I think, you know, as as you pointed out, he did a lot of different things with his art and and, I, you know, I, I think he made the right decision. <laughs> you know. Yeah, absolutely. It, it worked out for sure. Um, so what are some other collections that he's been in that you guys have discovered? You mentioned a couple around Mississippi. He's Is he collected outside of Mississippi? What, what have you guys found in this research? Well, certainly the Ogden Museum in New Orleans has several nice pieces of his. Um, and Cole Pratt Gallery there in New Orleans as well has represented him for a long time. So they will also have, I didn't mention the gallery exhibitions as well, but the galleries will be featuring um, work by him as well. And Cole Pratt will have, I believe in June, the first weekend in June, they will open um, their show. And so the Ogden certainly, um, where else around the state? Uh, well, I know Hans Community College, um, I know that Del Delta State, I believe Mississippi University for Women has his work. Um, um, University of Mississippi, uh, the Bowie Museum, I believe, has, has his work. And they actually had a, a, a whole Bucci show in 2010. That's great. Um, there. And the Mississippi um, Museum of Art has a pretty large collection of his work. And 
and of course Marie Hall as well. And there, when you look at credit lines, you know he would donate work by her. She donated some work by him, and so um, you know there, it kind of shows you those relationships again when you look at who's donating this work, and and they have several nice large canvases as well. Which of course mm -hmm. museums love canvas works because you can have them on view for as long as you want. You don't have to worry about light damage. So I think that's mm -hmm. um, you know. Really, for me, I feel like he's a paper artist, but it is nice to have canvases that you don't have to worry about quite so much light. This is Sarah Story, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen to the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sarah Story, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. This week, we're talking about the celebrations and exhibitions and programs that are occurring throughout the state this year for Andrew Bucci, an artist who lived in Vicksburg, lived in D.C., went to school in Chicago, and just had influences from all over the place. So we're joined today by Elizabeth Abston and Margaret Bucci. So... Margaret, tell us a little bit more about some of his um, accomplishments that, and awards that he received over his life. He had some really significant uh, recognition and opportunities. Yeah, yeah, he really did. His, his first major art award was in 1955, I believe, or maybe 56, and that was at the New Orleans Museum of Art. He won um, the first prize in their, in their exhibition, and it came with a uh, $500 cash award. So in the mid-50s, that was some, some serious money. So that was something he really celebrated. I mean, he had, this was just a couple of years after he finished his MFA in Chicago. So that was his big, um, that was his first big prize. In 1967, he was commissioned by the Postal Service to design the state, um, the stamp for Mississippi's 100, 150th anniversary of statehood. Wow. So, um, so that was also a, a big honor. It's the Magnolia stamp. Um, you might have seen it. it, it it's, it's quite beautiful. You can find them on Etsy, still, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Like the actual stamps? Yeah, the actual stamps. Oh, neat. Oh, yeah. okay. Hmm. Um, and then later in life, he won two uh, Lifetime Achievement Awards. In 2009, he won the Governor's Award um, uh, from the Mississippi Arts Commission and, and Governor Barber. And in 2012, he, he won an award from the Mississippi Institute of Arts and Letters. Oh, great. And in 2014, he was his art was chosen as the official artwork of the 2014 USA International Ballet Competition. So 2014 was the last year of his life. Mm -hmm. And the competition that took place that summer ended up being quite, 
quite a wonderful celebration for Andrew, Anna, and um, and for him and his art. Um, it ended up being a lot of fun, and I'm, I'm so thankful that it happened, um, you know, um, for him. Mm-hmm. And he was also a huge fan of the ballet, and he got to meet some ballerinas and some people from that world. So he had a ball. He had such a good time. That's awesome. Yeah, I remember when in 2014, when he passed away, I was I was working at the Ogden Museum of Southern Art in New Orleans at that time. And we put up a huge one of his huge abstract kind of more blue paintings and put a, a black ribbon over it in the lobby and, and kept it there for about three or four months. And it was just such a special tribute to his legacy and just the significance of his work in this region. Yeah, I remember somebody sent me that, um, and I was very touched by it, as was Andrew's family. That was really a beautiful tribute. And that painting, I, I, I think it was called Rain on the River. Beautiful painting. Yeah. yeah. It's gorgeous. Great. So, Elizabeth, what else have you learned from starting to dig in? I mean, I can imagine <laughs> that this has been such a huge process to plan and execute exhibitions and programs over an entire year in multiple cities that's just incredible it has but we've had great help and it's it's been really fun um and I guess so Margaret and I met when I was still working at the Mississippi Museum of Art and um of course I'd met like I mentioned I'd met Andrew back in about 2006 um and so you know Margaret had come to some events and we had connected and after I went out on my own to work, uh, I reconnected with her and she kind of brought up this idea. I think it was even when I was still at the art museum, you know, she's like, well, the hundred hundred birthday is kind of coming up. Like what, what can we do? You know, what are some ideas? And so the, the first thing you initially think about when you're celebrating an artist is of course a big retrospective. And, um, you know, anyone who's seen these major exhibitions that sort of covers the gamut of an artist's life from, you know, earliest days to, you know, their death is, it's a huge undertaking and there's a lot to go into it. And, and the more we started thinking about how, I mean, that would be wonderful. And I think we would love to do that one day as well. The more we started thinking about it, the more we realized that breaking it into smaller segments and really, you know, digging in and having each curator focus on a certain um, portion of his career or a certain theme or subject or whatever they chose really, um, that, that way and it would spread it across the state as well because he's in collections all across the state and across the south so it's it was important to us really the more we got to thinking about it like we really do want this to be accessible um to people all across the state and at different times as well so it really it once we started kind of breaking it down and putting it together it was really wonderful how excited the museums were to work with us on this because um, museums have such a rigid timeline and process and you know, their gallery spaces might be reserved a year or two in advance, if not longer. And so we were able to find um, spaces that worked out uh, with the curators uh, for, for that. And so that we've been really fortunate with that. And um, there is a lot of legwork on the back end, <laughs> but, uh, but it's been a really fun process and we learn something every day, you know, that we're, that we're in the vault working with his collection and, it's been great. So, well, what is? Well, I'll ask you both this question. So, Margaret, you first. What has been the biggest um, discovery that you've found about about your uncle that you didn't know through this this process? Oh wow, that is that is such a a, a great question. Um, I guess um, 
gosh, you know, he, he had such a prolific career and he, he never, it seems like he never stopped working and he never stopped trying to, to, to find new ways of, of his artistic expression. And I'm, um, I'm telling you that, that I'm, I've been surprised many times in going through his work and seeing the things that sprang out of his imagination. And um, it's, it's not only works on canvas, but um, his final sketchbooks were these really small, uh, one of them is spiral bound and the other one, I, I don't think spiral bound, but they're very small and they're like these. And this, this was when, you know, uh, toward the end of his life, uh, he had to, he was forced to move out of his house because of some, some, a landslide that had happened. So he was actually living in motels and he was drawing in these little sketchbooks and he, and they, and they're the most beautiful little watercolors and colored pencil sketches. And they're, to me, they're, you know, they're very poignant to see. And it just shows how even up until a few weeks before he, his death, the, he's, you know, he was still working every day and, no matter if it was a large sheet of paper or a tiny sheet of paper, he could just make it beautiful. And um, so, you know, it was kind of bittersweet finding those those sketchbooks um, after he died. But uh, they are just such a they're just such a joy. I mean, whenever I need to, you know, whenever I'm in a down mood and I look at Andrew's work, I, it, it can turn me around. It really can. That's awesome. Such a cool story, Lizzie. What about you? Oh, we run across surprises, I feel like, every day. Um, <laughs> it's just so much incredible work. Um, I, I guess at first, seeing the sketchbooks for the first time was a real surprise to me, um, just because of how detailed they were. And, and then as I've gone on, just his incredible devotion to detail and like technical detail in a way that you know, again, made him a great weather officer. Um, you wouldn't know looking at his abstract work that is so free flowing and loose and you know, gestural. And I mean, so easy and fun to look at um, how detailed he was and how meticulous in keeping records. I mean, as Margaret said, the, the archives that were donated, I mean, boxes and boxes and boxes more and more boxes it was just incredible and, and pretty well organized too um wow. and and just you know i think as he got toward mid-career he started uh going back and dating some of his works and, and the, like on the back in pencil and he would even write uh the location where it was and so that's been so helpful in looking back because you know, depending on the paper he used, you know, if it's really old paper, you can kind of tell, okay, maybe this was from the forties or fifties, but you know, if it's good quality paper, it's going to, it might look the same as something he did from the nineties. And so mm -hmm. having him be able, you know, dating things, he was telling us where it was and you know, that, that has just been so incredible. Um, he was signing everything. I mean, wow. it was that's <laughs> rare. A lot of artists, yeah, they will, you know, they don't think to sign the sketchbook stuff and then, you know, we don't know. So it's as from a, you know, from a research perspective, it has just been so refreshing to see how he really had his, you know, I don't, and he wasn't um, vain at all, right. but he really, I think, had his legacy 
in mind as far as this is important to record when when this happened and where it was so that you know if it's being looked at later it means it means a little more i think so it's yeah. that's been a really wonderful experience that's awesome and are there plans for exhibition catalogs or books or this year or, or, or coming up in the future around his work i would love to put something together like a a big catalog and maybe that could be I mean maybe that could be part of what happens next if there is a retrospective of his work then a big you know mm -hmm. comprehensive catalog would be um fantastic to do and since we've got this research kind of going with these great curators and researchers that have been working all along it could really come together I think in something wonderful and a, who wouldn't want an Andrew Gucci coffee table book I mean yeah. <laughs> that would be the best ever yeah. right so I, I would love to work on that um that's similar to a big exhibition can be a years-long process that oh, yeah. um so to really answer your question in short nothing major is coming out this year <clears throat> um we might have some brochures and printed material that margaret has been working with bill porch uh as far as design work and that sort of thing so we're hoping to have some of that come out later, but nothing major yet. That's great. Have you, um, Margaret, have you found more of his friends and colleagues and such as you've been working on this? Have you just have yes. been coming out of the woodworks? Yes. In fact, uh, recently a guy from Syracuse, New York, uh, reached uh, out through Instagram and sent me this just wildly amazing painting that he had that he inherited from his great aunt who attended Parsons with Andrew in 1951. And he so painted cool. this amazing, the, it's a woman with four arms. I'd never seen anything like it. <laughs> it was the coolest thing ever. And anyway, this guy had had this painting for years and I really didn't know anything about it. I, it just blew my mind. So yeah, these things are happening uh, from time to time. And, um, and it's been a lot of fun. Andrew made a lot of friends. And he, and he painted and gave his paintings away to a lot of friends. That's, I think that was a way of, of expressing his affection for people. And anyway, I told this guy, I said, Andrew must have really liked your great aunt. This, this <laughs> painting is fantastic. Yeah. That's super cool. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you guys so much for being on the show and talking about all the plans for Andrew Bucci's year and uh, as you guys mentioned, andrewbucci.com folks can find out more and is there a social media for Andrew Bucci? Um, at Andrew Bucci official on Instagram awesome. and Facebook. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners. So if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere.